Welcome to It's a Good Good Podcast. My name is Hayden. I'm Chris. I'm Harry. And yeah, we're just a bunch of guys having talks about theology, the Bible, and God. And basically our whole goal is just to be accessible to anyone that you don't need a theology seminary degree right. to be able to talk about God. We definitely. want to make it easy. And I definitely don't have any of those degrees. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's so true, though. I mean, you just have to be interested in it. Mm. All the information's out there. Mm. All right. So we're doing something a little new and different this week, which is exciting and something that we've wanted to do from the beginning, which is have guests on to kind of guide us in their life journey and also theologically kind of places they have landed and so we can kind of pick pick your guys' brains. So Garrett, thanks for joining us. Today. Yeah, oh yeah, you. thanks for having me. So um, yeah, my name is Garrett and um, I am a Roman Catholic. Um, I grew up in a Protestant home and it was here in Nebraska and uh, went to kind of a bigger church here and really, you know, try to plug in in a lot of different areas and stuff and always kind of felt a little bit, you know, a little bit to the side uh, for a lot of high school, for a lot of personal reasons. Sure. And as, you know, as I grew up and, and kind of uh, graduated from high school, I needed something different. I didn't know what that was. And so I actually moved out to Seattle, Washington for a couple of years. And I lived out there, and I got hooked into a church out there, and, and things were really good this out there. This is a Protestant church? Yes, it was a Protestant church okay. at the time, yes. I, uh, I got hooked out there and, uh, you know, got in the community and met some fantastic people, and it was, a, it was really good for my faith. I learned a lot about what it is that I believe personally, not just what, you know, the place I go says, mm-hmm. yeah. but more about what I believe personally, mm-hmm. and, and the experiences I had and out there was really good. I, I felt like I got really close to God and it was um, it was a very important part of, of my life. Yeah. When I moved back, my grandfather had died shortly before then. And so I came back for a multitude of reasons. I don't believe in singular causality. So right. um, so there was multiple reasons, but um, one of them was my you know, my grandmother being alone and you know, she's getting up in her age, and so I wanted to be with her for a while, you know, before she passes along, too. Yeah. And that was really good to, to do that. And one of the reasons I moved out there was also to go to school. And school is very, very expensive on the West Coast. Yeah. Right. So um, mm-hmm. I was already working full-time overtime, actually. And yeah. um, I was making ends meet, and everything was good, but it wasn't enough to also go to school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, right. so, and so part of it was I moved back to... Because I could afford SEC and I could I could make things work, so I moved back for for that reason as well. And when I did, I needed another place to connect into, and I had had such a good experience out in Washington that it was really hard at first. It was really mm-hmm. difficult because I was in this place of just I just want to be back out there, you know. I just want to, you know, it's the most beautiful place I've ever been in my life. Yeah. You know, the Pacific um, Northwest is oh, incredible, it's amazing. And so when I moved back here. I didn't want to go back to my parents' church, which was kind of this bigger, more more corporate setting, and I was really searching. And in high school, I'd also dabbled around in another church that uh, a friend of mine had gone to and invited me to. I did kind of youth group stuff with them for a while in high school. And so I kind of went back there, which was, it was also a Protestant church. Mm-hmm. And so, but it was a little bit more traditional Protestant. Sure. Um, I went there, and for a good, I don't know, probably close to year maybe a year and a half and as i was going there i just got this craving i you know of i need more i need more i need more you know i would go to church on sundays and then i would go to church on wednesday nights and tuesday nights and 
in my spare time off of work, I would spend, they had this little room up there for, for kind of the young adults and, uh, they had a little coffee house and everything. And so I'd go up there and, um, I would get on an iPad and I would just look up sermons from all these different churches from across the country and just listen and listen and listen. But something about it felt lonely. It was just me by myself, basically trying to, trying to get more and more. And it it was really difficult to connect in, in the community because the community was very, schedule oriented you yeah, know? yeah. Um, we don't have time for extra stuff outside of the times we've already agreed to meet and, sure, yeah. and things like that and so and so I began to feel pretty fairly lonely uh, in part of that and so another thing that kind of came up is that I was having a lot of personal issues in my struggles with getting really a good sense of what it means to live a good life you mm. know I was very materialistic and very uh, focused on how to succeed in life and how, mm. how do I get the things that I want in a lot of ways that I, I didn't even realize. Mm. A lot of it was very below below what I was looking at. And so that was a good source for for my loneliness. How of, did you realize that was happening? Like Yeah, so... Um, and, it's like, because I, I understand you're saying like subconscious, you don't yeah. even realize it, but one day it just occurred to you that yeah. the material stuff was too important to you. What really kind of sparked it was, I remember sitting in church one Sunday, looking at the stained glass windows that they had. Um, there was no images or anything. They were just different colors. And thinking, man, there's mm. something here. There's something about this that's that's beautiful, but there's more to it than this. And I think, as I you know watch the sun kind of shine through the windows, I'm like, man, I really like being here. I like the, the, the old-fashioned feeling of of this sanctuary, uh, you know, uh, these are good sermons. Yeah. Um, I like the people I'm here with, but but it's still there was there was more there. And so, what really drew me to understanding how materialistic and quite frankly selfish I was, I started to feel like a hypocrite um, in a lot of ways uh, of my focuses. <clears throat> I'd be like, I don't mm-hmm. really devote a lot of focus to actually spending time with God. A lot of it was well. I'll, I read these verses. I look up this theology, and I and I do all these mm-hmm. things. But there wasn't a lot of focus on my actual relationship with God. Yeah. Right. So as I was going through this, one of the things that became very glaringly apparent was I like being here, but I can't justify being here. Hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. I was in a very dark place, and at the same time, constantly trying to reach out and make a, a stronger connection with someone in the group. And it never connect. I never found that really strong connection that I could meet with someone regularly and find, you know, maybe even a mentor or or someone really close that yeah. partnership that that you know friendship kind of a thing. And so I I was at a place where at work one day they had hired a new a new person and I found out that this person was Catholic and they had told me this and at the time I had a lot of reservations about the Catholic Church I um, I disliked it very much because of what I thought it was and what I thought they taught and things like this I at first I kind of started to to tease her about this and the more I did it the the more I started to be like man I feel really bad because I don't actually know that that's true right, yeah. and and um, <laughs> And so my own selfishness was starting to glare back at me at a mirror. And one day, one day, I, I, I just became so curious about, like, everything that I thought I knew, I realized was baseless. I was like, I've only heard that from other people who've told me that. Like, right, I right. don't have any actual experience here. And so 
one time I was like, well, um, invite me to church because I've never been in the Catholic church and I don't feel comfortable just going in by myself. Right. I don't know anything about what's going on or anything. And so I need you to invite me in order for me to justify going. Mm-hmm. And um, she's like, okay, yeah, it's Sunday, this time, this place. So I went. And the first time I went, it was really interesting. It was a really interesting experience. One of the first things that I um, I noticed is when everyone came in, um, no one was talking. You know, they would come in, they would genuflect, and then they would sit down and, and quietly in prayer until Mass started. What does genuflect mean? Right. So genuflect <laughs> means uh, when you acknowledge uh, the altar, basically. Oh, like uh, the little kneel thing. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Before you sit down. Yep. It's just you come in, you acknowledge the fact that Holy Communion or the Eucharist is in the uh, altar up front, and then you sit down. So it kind of, it's it's this recognition that right. this is sacred. A reverent moment. Right, yes, yeah. exactly. Okay. And so, um, anyways, I saw people doing this, and I sat down, and my first experience was, you know, all these things happened, like all these particular things that everyone did. They stood up, they said some things, you know, they sat down. I listened very carefully to the things that they were saying and the things that they were doing. And the things that they were saying, on a surface level, there was nothing so far, nothing that really bothers me. Right. This seems to be fairly in line with what I already know. And then they did the homily, uh, which is the sermon. Mm-hmm. And I listened to that and... I listened very carefully to what he had said, and I was like, wow, this really, not only does this kind of fit into, you know, what I already knew, but it touched me in a way, you know, I yeah. I listened to what he said, and it's like, yeah, wow, I really agree with that, that really speaks into my life. So then I started coming back, and then I realized that they had Mass every day of the week, that there was, <laughs> there was an opportunity to go to Mass every day of the week, and mm-hmm. I thought about that, and I thought, wow, this, this need to to go to church all the time i can actually fill that and i can actually go to church every day even if i don't fully agree with what catholics have to say at this point i can actually be somewhere where i can get my spiritual connection with god and it really did it it filled me in this way that i'd never been filled before by the end of the first year of going i said to myself i want to be catholic what i'm getting here i'm not getting anywhere else Hmm. and i need to be here so then I started asking around, and of course during this time I met different people who were going and, and started hanging out with different people, and, and I started asking around, like, how, how do you become Catholic if you've never been Catholic? Because most of these people were cradle Catholics. Right. So I'm like, well, I, that was yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so that wasn't me, and so I was like, well, can I, is it possible for me to? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, no problem, you just have to go to, go to the RCIA class, which is basically the, the full explanation of... The beliefs and like, if you want to be a part of the church, this is what you have to affirm to, basically. Right. So yeah. if you're if you're a cradle Catholic, though, this is something you learn while, as you're growing up. Yes, right? exactly. Sunday school, <clears throat> yeah. You go through like confirmation. Yeah, right. Um, that's when you affirm these beliefs yep. for yourself. So then, as an adult, you basically go through a confirmation class, essentially, mm-hmm. and then do the same thing. You affirm it. Yeah. And like, you go on a Sunday morning and say, yes, I believe these things, or is there like a ceremony that takes place? Right, so yeah, it's it's part of the Mass. So for cradle Catholics, I think different parishes do it differently. They're, they might have they might have scheduled yearly times where this is the Mass for the right. year that we do all yep. of our confirmations for our students or sure. whatever. Right. For anyone coming through as an adult, they, ha- they do it on Easter Sunday. Oh, cool. um, so the Easter Sunday vigil... And there's there's a lot of deep theological reason, but um, 
But one of my one of my favorite connections with that is Jesus' resurrection connected with the baptism of new entries into his body in the same instance celebrating his resurrection. I think that's a very beautiful thought. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's um, a great metaphor um, and picture. Yeah, yeah. It's an yeah. illustration of, being hey, these, yeah, these people are being born again and mm-hmm. raised to new life just like Jesus. I think that's really cool. Sunset on the Saturday night of Holy Saturday um, is when we start the Easter Vigil, and then it usually goes two to three hours. It's a very long Mass. It's the longest Mass of the year because of the baptisms, the confirmations, all the extras that, that are in there. But it's also the most celebratory Mass of the year. Right. Afterwards, there's a big party in the basement, and everyone, you know, we have a big buffet and all that stuff. Great. So it's fantastic. You know, going in on and that Easter Vigil, you know, it was it was quite an experience. Um, there was one, only one other what we call catechumen, which is someone who has never been baptized or confirmed into any anything, being baptized for the first time. Um, we don't rebaptize the baptisms of most. I, I, I probably ninety eight percent of right. Protestant denominations are valid. So oh, okay. um, huh. the only the only thing required for a valid baptism is that it's in the name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Okay, that's it. Right. It doesn't matter if it's sprinkled, dunked, or any any of that stuff. Um, that so as long as they've had a valid baptism, they don't rebaptize. They just do confirmation. So, sure. But I was a catechumen. I had never been baptized before. That's that's kind of a little bit of my journey into the Catholic faith. Yeah. Um, I I shortly afterwards met some people that were very very knowledgeable about things that I uh, wanted to know about. Yeah. theologically about the church. And so I, I got some fantastic instruction from some people who who really, I felt, knew what they were talking about, both in philosophy and theology, yeah. um, which I think is really important, um, that the two are married in a logically consistent way. So, I mean, that's kind of my, my journey where I come from and my background. tradition especially with like saint thomas aquinas Mm -hmm. who really married logic and theology and philosophy yeah we mentioned before what we were what you were saying like the catholic church has a pretty detailed outline of every tiny theological point that they believe for the most part right so actually it's it's interesting so um the roman catholic tradition specifically is very um it's roman which means that they're very about very much about bookkeeping, record keeping. They like to keep records and, and information written and, and locked away. So So really quick though, Roman Catholic Church versus like just Catholic Church or anything else. Are there different yeah, types of Catholic churches? Yeah, so um Sorry. actually it's it's really that's that's a whole nother crazy thing. So Catholic just refers to universal. Yeah, so it's the right. universal church. The Roman Catholic Church is basically the head administrators, if you will, because there's also what we call Eastern Catholics or Bi- Byzantine, right. um, okay. which are basically Orthodox, but in communion with Rome. Oh. Interesting. Um, they're very small. Yeah. Um, and, Never heard of that before. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, uh, I have a friend who's who's a member uh, at, uh, I believe it's the Ruthenian Church, but, um, but it's very small. 
but they celebrate the divine liturgy, not the, the Roman mass. So when you say like the Catholic church is the universal church, would like a Protestant church fall under that blanket term or to- right, totally that's, different? That's how Protestants would use it. Right. They would say that everybody is in the Catholic, like the Holy Catholic Church. Right. But coming from a Catholic that, spe- that specifies, hey, we're the Catholic Church. And right. the Roman Catholic. Right. right. The way we view Protestants is that um, Protestants have a, a large chunk of the map. Um, but they're missing pieces. And different denominations are missing different pieces. Mm-hmm. And so to have the fullness of the church would be the Catholic understanding. But Protestants are still Christians. Uh, their baptism is still valid. And the other thing to note is that the, the Catholic church never never st- uh, makes statements on who specifically is in hell. They never do that. So yeah. if anyone ever says, you know, you're going to hell because you're a Protestant, they're just flat out wrong. I mean, that's... That's not the Catholic view. Right, exactly. Yeah. So that's kind of how they view yeah. that dynamic. Interesting. Yeah, that is really interesting. So you, in a way, you guys are part of the universal church. It's just you're missing... It's not the fullness of the, the missing sure. pieces. Yeah. yeah, and I think every denomination in the Protestant church would say the same thing. <laughs> sure, yeah. Yeah, or that some of their pieces are just misguided or yeah. whatever. So I think we have some questions about maybe some of those pieces that we don't understand. You know, I wouldn't say that I'm necessarily missing those pieces, but I would just say that I don't understand them fully. So, Chris, I think you've got at least a couple questions you want to start us Yeah. With? So, I mean, I'm sure you could provide clarity on this, yeah, but sure. um, something that I know a lot of Protestants have a hard time with is the idea of praying to saints. Mm-hmm. And um, before you came, I looked it up a bit, and I, I saw that that's actually not what the Catholic Church tells people to do. It's asking saints to intervene for you, right? Um, well, sort of. It's it's both, basically. Okay. So when we when we, say, when we say pray to saints, what we mean is we ask them for their prayers, right? Yeah, and and that's and it's essentially the same thing. We we actually take that from Revelation, um, and I made a notation specifically. Sure. Revelation 5, 8, um, with the imagery of golden bowls of incense and how it says that the, the, you know, it's the prayers of God's people. And so, and then that ties into the whole one body idea is that when we ask for their prayers, they're in heaven with God. Mm-hmm. Like they're already perfected in the fullness with, in heaven with God. So sure. they don't need our prayers, but we need theirs. And so when we, when we ask them for their prayers... It it fills that that imagery of that that heavenly scent of incense as prayers going to God, you know, on our behalf. So Revelations five, starting with six, describes a scene where the Lamb is standing in the center of the throne. It's encircled by four living creatures and the elders. Um, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the people. And they they sing a song about God being great after that. So what you're saying is this image of the elders in before the throne holding these bowls of prayers. You're basically what you're saying is we would pray to like say Peter. Um, to say, hey, you've got this bowl of my prayer, basically, like, can you take it 
to Jesus? Is that kind of the idea? Um, yeah, uh, essentially, yeah. It's it's kind of it's it's like that. There's also the matter of what we, you know, patron saints. So we have patron saints of different things, mm-hmm. um, and that's because of the life that they lived here on Earth. Uh, something about what they did in a, in a holy manner was relevant to some thing here or there. Right. And so we might ask specific saints for specific prayers. So if St. Anthony, I believe, is the patron saint of lost, uh, lost items. So if I lost my keys and I, I'm really late and I need to get somewhere or whatever, you know, and I'm really in a panic, you know, I could, I could pray, say, hey, St. Anthony, please pray for me. Yeah. It's, not, it's not solely utilitarian by any means. Sure. But, um, but it is something where uh, we acknowledge that as, as one body of Christ, we all have different parts to play. And so, you know, the eye can't be the hand and the hand can't be the foot. So it's basically just like extending what we know of the church here on earth where like some people, you know, if I have Mm -hmm. a particular problem in my life, I know that Chris might be better suited to solve that particular problem than Harry would, but Harry might be better suited to solve another problem. So the idea is if that's the case in, in earth, it continues on that way in heaven where, you know, there might be a saint whose who's dear passion is like orphan children or whatever. And so if you, if you are having an interaction with an orphan or if you are an orphan, you might cling to that person's passion even though that they're like in heaven. You would, you would still pray to that person to ask them to intervene because it's a close matter to their heart is what I'm hearing. Yeah, yeah, it's very similar. I, I think, just to clean up that analogy a yeah. little bit, I would say it's more like asking certain people to pray for you. Sure. So, for example, like, okay. if I know that you've struggled with something similar that I've struggled with, mm-hmm. I might ask you specifically to pray for that for that specific thing for me because I know we both might struggle with the same thing right. um, and that kind of thing. I would say that's that's probably the closest analogy. Yeah. Of, rather than asking for, like, the physical help, it's more like, hey, can you help, can you... Pray for me for this. Yeah. So for you on a personal level, mm-hmm. if you're like, let's say you lost your keys and yeah. you're going to pray to St. Anthony to ha- ask him to talk to Jesus for you, would you also pray to Jesus too? Or yeah, is of it course. just like, I pray to a saint, I'm done. No, no, no. no. So it's, it's, we believe in, in a, a great tradition of both and. It's not about replacing God or Jesus or any of their positions sure. with with anything else that we would rather do, but rather here's a multiple list of tools that we can use in conjunction um, that we might be more fully alive within uh, within that context, and and we have all these different ways that God graces us that we can use and and kind of go in that direction. Great, yeah, I, it it is interesting because. That I think having people pray for you is a pretty common thing in just churches in general. Like, you know, I might say, Harry, man, can you just pray for me? I'm having a really tough week. Um, that's something that people would just generally do in the church, or at least that's something that I, I have done in my, my own experience. So it basically is just taking that and extending it to say, like, just because these people are in heaven doesn't mean they can't continue to pray for you in the same way that they would here on earth. Right, exactly. That does, I mean, we're not going to go into this, but that does um, call up some pretty interesting theological points of view of where people go after they die. Yeah, yep. 
like immediately. Okay, they're in heaven, so they're beside God praying for me. So that's interesting because I'm sure that aligns with the Catholic view of heaven, which is cool. Yeah. Do you want to say anything about um, that? Or do we definitely don't have to. to. That's oh, yeah. huge. Yeah, it is. It, <laughs> it goes on a whole other trail. Then we start talking about purgatory and all that. Yeah, right. But um, but actually, one one thing I did want to notate. So this whole concept that he created of of his body as the church and and our our role in that. There's this beautiful matter of like these people have been perfected in heaven with God. They send up our prayers to God for us. That's a beautiful thought of like I even in like my worst times like in heaven there's there's these people that care about the rest of the body of Christ you know yeah. you know what I'm saying like we, we really are one body mm-hmm. and 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 yeah. I, I think that's that's such an amazing thing and it and it really gives hope I like that hope mm-hmm. that you know you you say even if even if you're alone in a back alley you know hopelessly addicted to something there's still hope. There's still hope in that, that someone's yeah. up there praying for you. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, I totally, I agree. I think that is a beautiful image. And I think there is a lot of disconnect in the way that we view the here and now life and then the life thereafter. Yeah. And I think that imagery kind of helps bridge that gap a little bit to where we see it now, at least a lot of people, I think, see it as just like two totally separate phases of life where that idea kind of bridges it and says, like, there's interaction between the heaven and the earth realm, just, you know, just as there is now, that interaction continues on, I guess. Like, there's there's this community that is way above what we see here in the present that's always there for you. Yeah. Yeah. Did you say that, would you say that's like one of the primary reasons you, you chose to be Catholic is because of that community feel? It sounds like from your story that that was like an immediate presence as soon as you entered. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was a lot of it. It wasn't the sole reason again, uh, single causality, but it it certainly, um, it certainly was a big reason. It was something that I, is a tool that I now had that I didn't have before that really helped me deal with things on a personal level that didn't require me to depend solely on the reliableness of someone else's schedule, you know? Sure, yeah. So it gave me concrete hope in a way that I had never experienced before. So, yeah. I think I think there, there was one thing you said in your story that really uh, was important to me, and that's, I think, you were self-aware enough when you started working with this person to, number one, start teasing them and then be like, I don't even know if any of these things are, are like, they're baseless yeah. things. That, and you said a couple of things in this overview that are misconceptions that I had. So you're saying that you know Catholics don't necessarily speak about if people are going to hell or not. That's a misconception that I had. Um, the concept of Catholic baptism, you know, I I, I I think I probably had a misconception of what that was as well. Um, and I think it shows that you even even then, you know, and now we're very self aware because I myself, so many people, whether they're atheists or agnostics or Christians or whatever, I think that they make assumptions and probably poke fun at different religions and also use that as a barrier to not learn more. Yeah. It's like, oh, like you're a Christian, like you believe A, B, and so like, oh, you're mm-hmm. a Catholic, like that's so dumb, I know everything about it even though I've never even looked into it. Yeah. I think it's really self-aware that you were like, okay, actually, I don't even know what I'm talking about, like why don't you invite yeah. me in so I can learn more? And you actually happen, you know, it changed your life because of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was, yeah, that was an experience. <laughs> and I would say building off what Harry said, um, I, for, for a long time, I had two really close friends that were Catholic and one of them could answer all my questions and the other one had no idea what was going on. Mm-hmm. And the, the one that had no idea what was going on was the first person I met. 
So I went to mass with them. Um, and I started asking all these questions. I saw this stuff like saints, different places. Like, what does this all mean? And they're like, I don't know. Yeah. This is just the way it's always been. Mm. And so like, that was really hard for me until I met somebody that could start answering my questions. And he was actually in a similar state as you that went from being Protestant to Catholic and man, it was really hard for me. Um, at that point in my life, I was heavily reformed and I was mm. sola scripturis all the way. Like yeah. all this tradition and stuff is completely bonkers. Like I don't mm. believe any of it. And uh, I just say that it's it's so important for people, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, spiritual journey or like what church you belong to, to know what you believe mm. and like why you're doing these practices, because somebody's going to ask you a question at some point. Yeah. And, like, you want to be able to represent it well, so... Yeah. And I think that's... You were talking about you would portray maybe, you know, the Protestant church as missing pieces. Mm-hmm. I personally um, agree with that. I think a lot of times I'm doing things that are super general, or we use phrases in church, Protestant church, that are super general, and I have to kind of fill in the blanks of, like, what that means for me individually. Mm-hmm. It sounds like the Catholic church thought to themselves, like, what does this mean for us you know, as an institution? What does this mean for us as a religion? Um, and I think that that... That probably alleviates some of the struggle, um, you know, as far as me being like, you know, why am I doing this? Why, why do I believe this? Or why is this important to me? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. And, you know, um, last thing on saints, I guess, is one of the things I contemplate a lot is the martyrs specifically. Mm. Because I look back and I say, there were, I mean, we're talking 2,000 years of church history. And that's a lot of dead people. A lot of people who have died in horrible, violent ways over a belief. That tells me that this belief is really important to know about. Mm. Um, It's really important to understand, okay, do I agree or do I disagree? And and why? And is that reason why? Is it good enough to justify saying that, yes, those martyrs were right or or no, those martyrs were wrong? Because they died. And that's not going to change. So... We have to look back and say, okay, was my reasoning sufficient to say, ultimately, you know, did they die in vain or not? Mm-hmm. And that's that's a heavy, heavy, heavy thing. Yeah. You know, that's 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 something to, to really work through. That would do anyone who contemplates that sort of thing, that would that does a lot of good in thinking about your own um, reasonings for, for doing things and thinking things. And um, it's been helpful for me, for sure. Yeah. So one more kind of question about saints that I think kind of bridges these two thoughts a little bit is I think in my tradition growing up, the word saint was generally, was used more generally mm-hmm. to describe all Christians, like all, all that designation was given to all kind of how Christians, Paul uses it. at least in, in like the, the translations that I used oh, growing up. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't know how it reads in, in other translations, but Paul, in the translations I use, uses a word saint to just talk about the church, basically. Mm-hmm. So it seems like, from my understanding, there's a, a more reverent use of that title in the Catholic Church. How does, how does it work in the Catholic Church? There's like a sainthood process, mm-hmm. am I right? Yeah. Like how, so what's, what's the designation and why, why the reverence, or do you know about yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. So um, basically when the Catholic Church declares a saint, that's what we would refer to as an infallible declaration. It means that on, on the authority of, of Christ's founding of the Church, we are saying that this person is in heaven with God. Mm. 
And the reason we say that these things are important, Jesus calls us to to follow him, right? Mm-hmm. To do to do as he does. And we believe that imitators of Christ are important pointer directions towards living like Christ. And so when the church declares a saint, that gives us a direction, mm-hmm. um, a very protected direction to say this person lived like Christ and there's someone we should we should pay attention to and emulate um, in and and if their story you know speaks to you then that's probably an indication that Jesus wants you somewhere doing something maybe similar or whatever but that sainthood is like this protection over th- the category of we're saying indefinitely these people are imitators of Christ and so we we should strive to be among them Right. Okay. So that that makes a lot of sense. So what you're saying is like in comparison to earlier, you said the Catholic Church doesn't ever make denotations of people who they are for sure is in hell. Correct. But they do make denotations to say after looking at this person's life, we are really sure that this person is in heaven. Yeah. Um, And so so we're, we're going to say like we know for sure that this person is a saint. And so we want you to look at that person's life as an imitation of Christ because Christ is his, he lived 2000 years ago. It's kind of hard for us, you know, even just with our scriptures to really imitate that on a practical level, but maybe I can imitate mother Teresa on a really practical level. And so look to her as another example of what it would be like to be Christ. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. I think the only other one I had, and we didn't talk about this before, but um, do you have any thoughts um, or anything you'd like to share about the Apocrypha? Um, or oh, even maybe what we should just talk about. Deuterocanon. The Deuterocanon, yes. Yes, yes. For people that might not know what that is, do you want to start there? Um, so like yeah, a Protestant says, um, there's extra books in this Bible. What would you say? Yeah, so um, <laughs> um, I, well, my, if a Protestant said that to me, I would reply probably with something like, well, actually your Bible's missing a couple of books. There you right? go, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So actually, yeah, so, um, and, and that really comes down to the issue of authority, of understanding, um, you know, the, the Catholic position on, on church authority right. versus, you know, the seven books of the Old Testament, and they were never questioned as part of Scripture until uh, about the 1500s. It gets dicey because we got to talk about church councils and declarations and, and things like that. And really what it comes down to is, I, I believe on that issue, it comes down to whether or not you believe the church has the authority to say, these were the scriptures given to to the body of Christ through whatever means, whether it was, mm-hmm. you know, writings of apostles or, or um, disciples or whatever, whether you believe that claim by the church or whether you say, well, this doesn't make sense to me you know, with these other books, so it, it must not fit in, and therefore it's not Holy Scripture. So different arguments and different ways of looking at that, but ultimately I believe that that is the particular issue that that comes down to. Sure. It sounds like the Catholic Church has a lot of strength as far as declaring things, so they can declare if somebody's gone to heaven or not. Mm-hmm. They can declare whether a book of the Bible should be considered canonical or not. 
Um, I think maybe that's some maybe strength isn't the right word, but that's some like authority that I, I don't think that yeah. a lot of the churches. I think I, I think people have a hard time with it because the original canon was so so far before the um, apocrypha was added. So some people are like, okay, this is a thousand years later. Mm-hmm. Like, why are we adding these now? But if you still have the same, if you think that authority never changed, if it's still the same as it was in the 300s, Mm -hmm. as it was in 1500, then like, why would it matter that we're including these now? And because, I mean, initially they had to, you know, in the first canon, they had to say some books weren't, some books were. So like, why would that be any different? I think is what, what I've heard. And that makes a lot of sense to me. But, you know, a lot of other people would be like, okay, why were we okay with these for 1,200 years? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. now we want to add to it. So, um, Yeah, no, I think the response you would get is something to the degree of, well, those books were all just widely accepted. They mm-hmm. weren't really added. The only reason they were viewed to be added is because at that time there was this opposition reformation. Right. I w- yeah, reformation. Like response, right? Yeah, and so, and so it was more a matter of, it had never been called to question before. And so w- when things are called to question in a serious manner, then the church has to take a position. Right. The, the church usually has this policy of we're not going to declare or, or take a position on things that are gray area until they become an issue where we need to. Okay. Sure. Um, and so, that makes sense. And so it would have been viewed as something like we've always used these readings. These are things we've always had. Um, so they're part of it. Uh, whereas the opposition said, no, they're not. Right. right. There's a lot of pressure on the church to say to make a decision at that point. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Makes sense. So one more question on authority that I think is a real obvious disconnect between pro- the Protestant church and the Roman Catholic church is the Roman Catholic church has a highly authoritative structure. Like, you know, we have the Pope. Mm-hmm. who is at the top, and he can authoritatively declare things, mm-hmm. if, at least from my understanding. You, you know, you said un, infallible declaration mm-hmm. earlier, basically meaning that if someone were to make an infallible declaration, you're basically saying, like, this is the word of God given to me, is how I would understand it. The Pope has that authority to make those declarations. Is that how that works? Um, yeah, so the Pope does have the authority to make those declarations. It's only been done twice in 2,000 years. Okay. Uh, wow. To my knowledge. Okay. Um, it's, even within Catholic circles, there's some gray area in figuring out because um, there's been some some declaration-type things that have come out from Popes in the past because there's there's very specific requirements that have to be met. Um, in order for for the Pope to be able to do that. One, it has to be on faith and morals. Um, it can't be anything political. It can't be anything uh, trivial. You know, it has to be on faith and morals. Okay. And it has to be done what we call ex cathedra, meaning from the chair. And there's debate on what exactly that means specifically. I can name for you one of those two that, that I know uh, for a fact, a infallible declaration, which uh, I believe was the... Uh, assumption of the Virgin Mary into heaven. So that doesn't necessarily mean that she didn't die. It just means that it, she was just assumed into heaven. Hmm. Um, I think I think there's archaeological evidence of her bones, maybe. I, I've heard that somewhere. Um, but um, It's hard to pin those things down. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But basically, but, but she basically, went straight from earth to heaven. Essentially, yes. Yeah. Yep, yep. Um, and then that's that's the assumption, and that's an infallible declaration. It's like a physical, like her body went from earth to heaven, or she um, just went there. 
I, I, I mean, probably. I, I, believe, I believe it. It does include her body. I'm not sure, okay. but I believe so. Sure. Um, and I and I also believe that that was Pope John Paul II. So that was actually a fairly recent thing. Oh, okay. Um, most interesting. The most ordinary form of infallible decoration is through the church councils, which of course uh, is is so it's a meeting of the bishops, um, and it has to be an ecumenical council. So if I remember correctly, I believe that's specifically a, a, a certain amount of. Uh, bishops have to be there. Okay. Um, and uh, I think it also includes the College of Cardinals and and um, and the Pope, and then um, and then they have to um, then they have to write up. They they debate sure. really hard for a long time. There there have been councils that have lasted for years and years. In fact, the Council of Trent, which was the response to Lutheranism, lasted uh, long after Luther died. Actually, before it came to a close. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Um, it's certainly not a fast process. It's yeah. not something like they do just on a whim. Right. But yes, uh, we do claim to have that authority uh, based off of the nature of what we understand the church that Christ founded to be. Which you see evidence of similar councils happening in like the book of Acts, for instance. There's yeah. this divide between do we have to be circumcised? Do we not have to be circumcised? And they all come together, they debate, (laughs) and eventually they declare, no, you don't need to be circumcised. Like, that would be a similar infallible declaration made by the church Mm -hmm. in the book of Acts. Yep, yep, exactly. And I I would agree with that assessment. Absolutely. So, one more question that I have is, in your transformation or change from going from Protestant to Catholic, did you struggle with a view of Jesus that, like, a role, his role um, in your life? Did that transform and change, and was that a struggle for you? Or do you see the role of Jesus in your life basically playing the same role before as it does now? So um, that's actually a really great question. I like that question a lot. The role of Jesus in my life. So before I became Catholic, obviously Jesus was important to me. And I think I always took my faith at least mildly seriously. Because I thought about things like this long before I became Catholic. And I always, you know, even when I was living in Washington, there were a couple times when things were really not so great. And the only option I had, I felt I had left was basically to pray and really um, focus on that relationship. Mm-hmm. But I think I've, during that time, I viewed it more as a sense of God. M- more of like that ambiguous, abstract kind of, big ball of light in the sky, you right, know, yeah. uh, kind of an idea, and he cares about me and stuff. And so my my view of Jesus was really kind of disconnected in a lot of ways. I really more or less understood Jesus to be God and that his death and resurrection was important, but God is the big man in the sky. So that's really where a lot of my focus was at the time. Yeah. When I became Catholic, my view of Jesus really changed for the better in that um, I really began to see Jesus as a person. You know, you see these crucifixes of Jesus on a cross, and you see uh, these statues of Mary holding baby Jesus, and you see these these icons of, of Jesus as an adult. And all of a sudden, he becomes a person. You, you, you get this imagery of, like, there is a person here. And... Um, and that really helped me a lot because then, then now it's a lot more, when I pray, it's, it's a lot more like I'm talking to the person of Jesus and I'm really thinking about, you know, who he was as a person, what he did and what he wants for me. And there's something, there's a connection there between like this historical 
reality and and like this reality of now mm. um, that's very deep and intimate. And it really intensified my relationship with Jesus. And now I, I feel like, okay, I have this good direction of where I think Jesus wants me to go and what, what he wants me to do. And so I want to do that. And I think that's that's been a big part of, of that change in, in views there. For, you know, I think that these guys are a little more knowledgeable than I am. I think that this told me a lot of things that I didn't know. So, I mean, it's, it's, I would encourage anyone listening, right, to, to have open conversations with me instead of just poking fun or maybe just, like, not, you know, exploring. Have open conversations with people that might believe maybe th- something you even think is different than you because it might be more similar than you think. Yeah. I mean, it might change your life like it did, like it did yours. Yeah, and you, you can't ask other people to be vulnerable to your point of view if you're not willing to right. be vulnerable yeah. to theirs, so yeah. it's very important. Yeah. Well, cool. This has been a super good conversation, and kind of I hope that we get some responses from this, maybe more questions from people, mm-hmm. um, because I think there feels like a big disconnect between Catholic and Protestant views, um, at least from my understanding. Yeah, something and, happened 500 years ago. Yeah, really yeah. Sure. <laughs> yeah, there's this thing, it's really weird. But, but ever since then, it's kind of like, well, they're just wrong, and, and they're just wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think we we just kind of think that. But there And there are a lot of questions where we're like, well, why do they do it like this? And we address a lot of them, but I hope that people have more questions and maybe... After we get some of those in, we'll have you in again, we'll and we'll, yeah, we'll rehash and continue the dialogue because I think this has been a really fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I've really enjoyed it for sure. Yeah. We've only like scratched the surface of it too. Oh, for go, sure. We can go away. Any of those topics? Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah there, there are like four more questions that I have in my mind that like if we asked them, it'd be another like three hours. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, so, for sure. So I, I hope we can do that in the future. But I think it's important to start in a place of common ground mm-hmm. um, with the church, and that's that's one of the main reasons that we're doing this and wanting to invite people in is to say the church is better when we're together and you know we starting in a common place is good and and it seems like we've come to more common realizations just in like this conversation than maybe we would have thought of before which i think is just important so yeah i think that's that's something i look forward to continuing and yeah i'm excited for next time that's awesome cool well thanks garrett again and We'll do it again. All right, awesome. Thank you. Let me do Shout out to Canyon Coffee for the delicious coffee we've been drinking today. If you've been watching our videos, then you see it. But if you've only been listening to the audio, then you don't know that we are run on Canyon Coffee Roasters. And also the music that you hear is from Clink Tracks and also John Jones Project. So thanks to you all for making awesome music that we can share. Yeah.